Hey there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Line Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been and it always will be. Okay, welcome to White Line Fever. The name of the show is that because it's supposed to be about sport and rock, but very rarely do we get a guest who's across both worlds. But this guest is, it's Fred Corey from Cinderella. How are you, Fred? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Good, 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 good. Um, Thanks for coming on. Now, uh, the reason um, we're speaking to you um, straight off the bat is because you score the music for the LA Kings home games. Is that right? Is that what you do? I do. I don't work at the arena, but I score the music for the television commercials uh, anything on the Jumbotron, basically all of their original music is from me. The goal song, their entrance music, uh, and basically the theme of the LA Kings. And how did you get that gig? Um, this is my seventh year. Uh, I did a song a long time ago that I thought this would be great for hockey. I've always been a hockey fan since I was a little kid. And, um, all during the arcade years, arcade used to hang around, or they used to hang around us, most of the guys on the Kings. Like Luke Robitaille and Rob Blake and all of those guys used to come. In fact, I think, I think all of them were thanked on the first arcade record. They used to hang out with us at the studio, and we always used to just play poker together, and, and they would come for a rehearsal at, at our rehearsal spot and we would never play a note we'd just be playing cards the whole time it was a blast (laughs) um and then luke robitaille heard that song and said hey i've got an idea i i want this team to be not only something to watch a spectacle to watch on the ice but i want it to have a sonic uh imprint that it that makes it uh, independent from the others makes it our own so when you you don't only see the kings take the ice you hear the kings take the ice right so he said uh you know can you come up with a theme song so i did i came up with a theme song for them and it's basically all you know epic orchestra with uh a heavy rock band behind it because and, um, and sorry hmm? no i was gonna say people who've not been to see the la kings like I, they imagine just organ music, <laughs> you know, but it's obviously nothing like that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, it's um, it's very heavy, yeah. very loud. Um, you know everything that they play. So he asked me to do that, which I did. And then the second thing he asked me to do was, "Can you write us a goal song to play after they score a goal?" But that's a tough one because they had. Um, they had Gary Glitter, which is, uh, you know, one of the biggest sports songs of all time. And um, Rock and Roll Part 2. And before that was I Love L.A., which is uh, Randy Newman. Mm. So he said, we need a, a new song. And I said, what's wrong with Gary, Gary Glitter? But I guess he's been in for <laughs> something. So they didn't want to have that. He said, turn on CNN. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think a lot of the sports teams were, were veering away from using him. 
Yeah. So I came up. I asked him. I said, "What makes uh, you know? What makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up straight when you uh, when you get on the ice?" And he told me. And I basically created a goal song, and we worked on it. And you know, for the first couple of months, it was scary because here's nineteen thousand people every night. The song would play, and nobody would do anything. And he said, "They're going to love it." I love it. They're going to love it. And, you know, when we won the Stanley Cup a few couple of years ago, the first one, I would be lying if I didn't say I had tears in my eyes when you know, 18,000 people were all chanting to that goal song and we were hoisting that cup. Yeah, that's so awesome. it's, uh, again, I've got the coolest life ever. <laughs> and you've spread. You spread your talents now to basketball, is that right? Portland Trailblazers, you were saying? Yeah, I just uh, signed for my first deal with them for three years. So uh, I'm in the middle of my nine-year deal with the Kings, and then now three years with these guys. And, uh, you know, some of the guys from the Kings went up to Portland and uh, asked me if I would uh, help just kind of get an overall sound for them and clean up what they have and, and kind of just do that for them as well. So, mm. uh, of course, I spoke to the guys at the Kings and they said, yeah, who do you think rep recommended you? Mm. I said, okay, good, thank you. <laughs> Is this going to be a corporation? You're just going to be doing sports teams all around the world? Uh, uh, hopefully. That is a goal. <laughs> you know, later, that is definitely a goal is to just kind of, you know, because of the, Paul Allen who owns... The Trailblazers also owns the Seattle Seahawks, so you never know. But um, it's something that after doing it for so long with the Kings, and now I did one year at um, at the Detroit Pistons, that I'm I I, I have an understanding of, of what has to happen in an arena to create the energy hmm. to get the fans riled up, which in turn get the uh, team fired up. And then the energy starts going back and forth between all of them. And uh, music definitely has, it's kind of scoring, it's not scoring television, it's kind of scoring real life, mm. which is a whole nother thing that's crazy. And it's just even saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, but then again, with the Kings, you have Dieter Ruhl, who is the organist, who actually plays the music, you know, has the mm. instant replay machine and, and plays plays the music that I create and obviously music like Van Halen and, and Marilyn Manson and Metallica and he knows exactly when to play what hmm. and that is and he does the Lakers and he does the US Open and he's amazing to me he's the best uh, of the best that does that yeah now we're gonna I'm gonna ask you I didn't warn you this but I'm gonna ask you to just pick a song any song ever um, at the end of this little chat for the podcast but I want to ask you about NASCAR as well. That you, uh, you, uh, I've read that you're in pit lane quite often in NASCAR. And also, I, I meant to ask you this before for our print interview, but I read that you're a storm chaser as well. I mean, they, uh, tell, tell us about those two things. All right. Uh, well, NASCAR, when I lived in... Both, both stories come from NASCAR. I mean, from Nashville. Uh, I, I lived right next to... Uh, a guy that became a really good friend of mine. He's like a brother now. Um, and his family owned 
uh, a couple of NASCAR teams. And he always said, come to a NASCAR race. And I was like, I ain't going to no NASCAR race. <laughs> you know, I'm into open wheel racing. Yes, yes. I, I like Formula One, thank you. And he said, hey, man, you've got to come and check out NASCAR. And I said, yes, I'd rather not, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he talked me into it. And the first race that I went to was Bristol Motor Speedway, which is a quarter-mile track with 43 cars going 100-and-something miles an hour. And it was absolute rock and roll mayhem. It was, and I said, the, the best thing that could happen now is if these yahoos get out of their car and start fighting. And wouldn't you know it, at the end of the race, two drivers got out and started beating the tar out of each other. <laughs> and I was like, you have, this is the greatest sport in the history of mankind. And I became such a fan of NASCAR. And then I got to hang around and got to uh, meet a lot of the drivers and a lot of the teams and I, I am a big big fan and have a lot of dear friends in NASCAR uh, because of that so yeah I do love NASCAR and then storm chasing came from exactly what you and I are doing right now which was a where are they now <laughs> and I had just moved to Tennessee um, none of the other guys were there it was just me and I said hey what are the storms like down here and they go I ain't nothing just never tornadoes and just, you know, some rain maybe here and there. So that summer there were 72 tornadoes. It was mind-blowing. I was, every time, if, every time there was a storm, there's a tornado. So, twister. So uh, we did a, a, like an MTV or VH1 thing, and they said, what have you been doing? And, you know, Jeff said, I don't do anything. And Eric was like, oh, I sleep a lot. And. Tom was working on a solo record, and I said, I chase tornadoes. And they said, great, the story's going to be about you. I said, oh, my gosh. I, I, didn't, I was scared to death of tornado. I had no idea. So, long story even longer, uh, we were in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and I met a guy named Jeff Piotrowski, hmm. who is the number one tornado chaser in the world. And I explained the story to him, and he said, well, then we better get you out and get you some footage so you're not a liar. <laughs> and he started taking me storm chasing. So for four years, I chased tornadoes. Wow. And it was the most, it was the scariest thing that I'd ever done, and the most exhilarating, exhilarating and, and, and um, life-fulfilling experience. Uh, crazy thing that I have ever done because you know I'm too scared to even get a tattoo I've never gotten a tattoo for crying out loud <laughs> uh, uh, and jumping out of a plane is not an option yeah yeah so chasing tornadoes gave me I think I needed that that one thing that kind of you know pushes you to the edge yeah and uh, and that was it man and you did it just because someone said you did and you had to make sure it wasn't a lie. <laughs> That's an interesting. You want to make it a lie, and then the first time I went out, I was my mind was blown. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And it, then I started studying. I started studying storms, and I started studying RFD, which is the you know rear flank downdraft, and the all these crazy things, helicity and and uh, updrafts and the dry line and, and everything just started going to um, everybody can see it on the uh, 
Storm Prediction Center's website. You can go to NOAA, which is NOAA.gov. And then there's this Severe Storms Laboratory. And you can learn about all this stuff and wind shear. And, man, it, it really, the science behind what it takes to produce a tornado, because, you know, every, everything has to come together perfectly for it to spawn a tornado. Hmm. But uh, I really got, like, really crazy into it for a long time. Hmm. And then now I live in California, and I, I remember when I first moved here, I I chased something which I thought was an amazing cloud. It was just a smudge on my sunglasses. Chased it for an hour. There's no, it's, there's no weather here. It's sunny all the time. It's so boring. <laughs> so, it's so boring. It's another perfect day. It's like, oh gosh, you're killing me. I'm, I'm a bit concerned. As soon as I get off the phone, the next person you speak to, you're going to do your best Australian accent. So I'm glad. I'm not going to hear that. You're very good at uh, posh English accent and uh, and southern. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'll try not to, but I try to do Australian uh, a little bit here and there. I try. Um, okay, have you got a song for us? And I'll leave you in peace, Fred. Just anything in history, but uh, I don't know. I won't even uh, lead you in any direction. Just pick anything. The Holy War by Thin Lizzy.
Star Riders here, people, and you are listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back to White Line Fever. We are in a pub near uh, Wellington train station with uh, Joanna Lester, and the rugby league season is finally over. And I was almost too exhausted to um, speak, let alone record a podcast. But having had a sip of beer, I've, I've, I'm having my 47th win. Um, how did you enjoy the, uh, the final, Joanna? I really enjoyed it, and uh, to be honest, uh, the result was particularly enjoyable. I think, as I said to you earlier, this was my uh, third preferred result from a personal perspective after Samoa and England, but great to see the Kiwis win such a tight tournament in such a close game, and I think it really reflects what a close tournament it's been and uh, how we have seen the emergence of some, not emergence, but um, in the case of the Kiwis, the resurrection of another power and the emergence of Samoa as a new power. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was James McSmith said to me that um, the Kiwis have won four tournaments in nine years, so does that make them actually the team of the decade? <laughs> well, uh, the Kiwis weren't prepared to describe themselves as the, uh, the world's best nation, were they? They, they? they agreed that they'd won the four nations, but yeah, I mean, 2005, 2008, 2010, this year. In fact, since 2008, they have only lost to Australia in a final once. Obviously, they didn't make some of those finals, but that's actually a pretty good record against Australia. It is, and uh, it's the first time since 1953 that they've beaten Australia in back-to-back matches, uh, which is uh, a pretty good stat. Um, so where, do, where does it leave us, do you think? Like, does the balance of power in, in rugby league change, or is it the uh, same as it ever was, or where, where, what are, where are we left? Well, I think we've seen, as we've talked about a lot, the changing of the guard for Australia and the fact that 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 change has to take time and and this tournament has proved that you can't suddenly bring in that many new faces and expect to still win. The Kiwis have also got plenty of new faces and and they've got a a more solid core and then that's probably what's all come out on top in this tournament. So I guess, as we said in the last 10 years, the Kiwis have been there or thereabouts and they still are. As for England, well, we keep saying that they're nearly there, but they're still not there. And uh, it was quite—it was difficult to really, really reflect on England that much this tournament because every time they lost, they were still just about in it pending on the results. So I'm not sure yeah, yeah. the England forms has really had the post-mortem it deserved. And of course, Samoa as a game changer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's well, one thing I found interesting. And this story Brad Walter wrote at some point was—I think he quoted Brad Fittler as saying. Um, the Samoan team is what Australia's depth used to be and, and you know, the emergence of these other teams full of NRL players uh, means that you know, 
Australia can no longer pick as many teams as they used to that could beat any opposition. That's true, but again, it depends on whether players are going to opt for Australia or others. And if those other nations know they're going to have regular fixtures, then there's all more reason for players to uh, pledge their allegiance to them. So it is interesting. We talk about the fact that nearly 40% of NRL players are of Pacific Heritage. If those teams all did have regular fixtures and were able to pay, pay their players a bit more than they were now, then you, uh, Australia would have fewer players to pick from. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, uh, I'm just going home tomorrow, but you should probably tell the listeners where you're going in the next week. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. It's the end of the rugby league season for most countries, but there is one country where the rugby league season apparently continues all year round, which is Papua New Guinea, where I'm going to be spending a year from the end of this month uh, working in rugby league media over there, promoting some of the great work uh, that the NRL is doing in uh, education and community development, using the insane popularity of rugby league for uh, social change. Really the only place in the world where that could happen. So um, how long are you there for a year, and, and, and what are you going to do? Well... I'm going to be making some uh, some multimedia about the schools-based rugby league programs that are happening there. So PNG has a lot of um, social problems, including children not going to school very often past the age of 12, uh, domestic violence, respect for women in general, um, healthy living concerns. And this rugby league-based education program is using harnessing the popularity of rugby league to address all those things. So I'll be, you know basically raising awareness of that program both in PNG and Australia and beyond. Hopefully there'll be some interest uh, over in the UK as well. Also, I will be training the ever-growing team of rugby league development staff in PNG in media skills, which is still a pretty new thing there. Social media is just taking off for most people, so it's an interesting time for the rugby league development staff over there to start, you know, Facebooking, tweeting and maybe podcasting about their experiences. Well, I hope uh, you talk to us about it next year. Thanks for your help all year on the podcast. WLF podcast on Twitter, wildlifefever.ning.com to come and join. And we're also on uh, Facebook. Uh, enjoy the off-season if you're going to have one, Joanna. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll be in touch from the land of the unexpected next year.
Fred Corey from Cinderella, and you are listening to White Line Fever. White Line Fever. Welcome back to uh, White Line Fever. That was Let's Play Ball, new uh, single by ACDC. Now, um, you heard Joanna Lester before the break. Before that, you heard Fred Corey from Cinderella. And uh, the last segment I did, I was like half awake. So uh, this is White Line Fever. And this is a rugby league and rock and roll show, and I'm here with Brent Reid, and we've just spoken to Joanna about the tournament as a whole, so we're going to talk about the final with Brent Reid from the Australian. What did you think of the game last night? I thought it was a good end of the tournament, Steve. It was an entertaining game, it was close, it was, had a great finish, so it sort of encapsulated the entire tournament, didn't it? It was mm-hmm. just entertaining, mm. good footy. And we've just been sitting in the uh, lounge, and um, a few of the Aussie players are in here. We saw a replay of that uh, pass at the end, which could have bought uh, Sione Metallia a try. Uh, what do you think on the replay? Uh, well, on replay, I probably think it was a, a fair pass and a mm. poor decision, but it was pretty light. It was line ball. I mean, I spoke to Tony Archer, and uh, he was staying in my hotel, funnily enough, after the game, and he, he said he thought it was definitely a forward pass, but watching it on replay, and you, we heard the Aussie blokes yelling out of the screen, so <laughs> that was a try, you know. It's hard to argue with them. I mean, you know, it's one of those ones could have gone either way, but it probably looked like a legit legitimate try in hindsight and and you know he obviously got the ball down as well which was outstanding I and mean, there was some still footages on mm. social media of him getting the ball down just brilliant stuff from him 18 year old kid just brilliant yeah, yeah but he was very upset after the game I was yeah. out in the middle of the field working for Triple M who you work for as well and um, he was, so had to be comforted by, by the captain a little bit so he took, took the loss very hard I suppose there's a lot of pressure um, playing for Australia isn't there with that, yeah. that history and it was the first time since 1953 Kiwis have beaten them in consecutive games mm. yeah I mean, you know a sad end to him for what's been a fantastic tournament for him he played three games I think in the end didn't he 18 year old kid he's almost played as many tests as he has in our all games now mm. um, and you know he took it pretty hard but as you said I think Cooper Cronk had a word to him too we spoke to him after the game and he said Cooper and Cam just told him to keep his head up and you're going to play a lot more test footy in years to come and mm. it's hard to argue I mean geez, he's, um, he's a player he's going to be a great player for a long time a couple, a couple of things for me last night sort of stuck out about the how things have changed with national football and how Australia's fortunes have, have changed you know, and, and one was that um, Australia picked a guy who played seven NRL games uh, to mark a guy who played 198 who's not an Australian and had yeah. played it in the Australian competition I mean you know, there's no other time in the history of the game that would happen and, and also Tim Sheens um, and Cameron saying after the game that you know that it could have been a blowout, uh, and you know, the, the full credit to our goal line defence for preventing that. Yeah. I mean, I've never heard an Australian, which is he's just stating a fact, yeah. but I've never heard an Australian captain or coach say, "Oh, it was really good that we avoided a blowout." <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, Tim, Tim's caught a bit of flack actually uh, over Australia's performance at this tournament. They've got so many players out. I mean, I, you know, I think New Zealand, New Zealand was the superior side last night. They were superior side in the opening game, and if they'd been beaten, it would have been a travesty. But you know, to do what he's done with, you know probably conservatively at least 10 starters out of that football side. I mean, he's done a pretty good job, and mm-hmm. that team did a pretty good job, I thought, mm-hmm. you know. When you consider Dave Clemens, I don't know if Dave Clemens ever started in a role game, and he's mm-hmm. playing playing in the front row for Australia. I mean, I think they had a pretty good tournament overall, and what it will do, it'll pay off down the track, won't it? Because they've got a broader base now of mm-hmm. players to choose from. They've got blokes who've come through and, and shown that they can belong at this level, like... Matty, you... Oh, I can't say his name, Steve. I think they've, they've had a meeting, the family, and they've settled on Matautia. Matautia, OK, we'll go with Matautia. <laughs> I mean, he's shown... Because they're all pronouncing it differently. <laughs> well, he belongs. I mean, well, OK, I'm not even going to bother. But Sione, he belongs. Cle- I mean, Clemens shown he belongs, hasn't he? Aaron Woods had a pretty good tournament. 
um, you know, they all sort of showed that they can play at this level. I mean, it's going to be a challenge next year because Australia's only playing one test, I think, next mm-hmm. year. All those guys are going to come back, you know, and, and those and the Clemmers and the Sionis would be probably relegated out of that side now. But mm-hmm. on, on the way they played in this tournament, they probably deserve another chance. But they get, I would say they're going to have to wait. There's a story about in the local paper today saying... Um, Oh, it always sounds disparaging when you go the local paper. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, there's a story. It would it would it would be the Dominion. Do they have a Sunday edition? Anyway, no. Anyway, um, you're the world traveller. Yeah, yeah. No, but um, it says oh, you know, the international rugby league set to suffer a setback because there's fewer and fewer tests being played. But it's actually more than there were sort of ten years ago. It's, you know, like it used to be. Um, and it's just Australia who are, who are crying off. Everyone else, and we've seen them with the rise of Samoa in this tournament, etc. England are going to uh, host. New Zealand next year, so it's not really. I think things are on the improve, and you know, I mean, Australia playing fewer tests doesn't mean there's no test football. You know, yeah, I think it's a bit sad though they're only playing one game next year. I'd like to see them play. You know, I think they should play three tests at least at the end of every year. Um, you know, we need to shorten the NRL season. I think we all sort of agree on that, and they need to squeeze in more international footy. But you know, they're locked into a television contract. That's not going to change for another was it three, four years? So you know, it's locked in. But it's a bit sad for me. I'd like to see them playing some sort. I mean, it's a shame the British Lions couldn't come out and do a tour because that was obviously. It. Well, they got told to stay home yeah. by the player. I mean, the players didn't want to play. Yeah, and that's sad. I mm-hmm. think that's really sad. You know, I mean, the British Lions tour would have been fantastic, mm-hmm. you know, and they could have played Australia two or three, you know, two or three tests, done the Kiwis as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been fantastic for rugby league, particularly after this. Like this tournament's been a real success, hasn't it? It's had mm-hmm. good crowds and people have followed it. There's a thirst for international footy, uh, you know, out there. And next year, there's there's not going to be any for um, mm-hmm. for Australia anyway. Yeah, there's yeah. not going to be any. Mm. In Australia, and um, I think it's it's sad because you know I think we need to keep it going because there's a bit of momentum there at yeah, the moment. Yeah. Now, in, in um, days gone uh, by, the day after the last game of the season, we'd we'd be uh, drunk in a gutter somewhere. <laughs> uh, but now we're both very grown up. What are you What are you up to? Uh, I'm doing a bit of golf, Steve. We're going to Melbourne on Tuesday, actually, for a bit of golf. And uh, um, three three more weeks, and I'm on a big holiday. Like, you're having a big holiday tour, Gavin? Yeah, I'm not going anywhere this year, though. Yeah, geez, that's, well, you go everywhere during the year. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I've, uh, I've got about three more weeks, four more weeks left, I think, then I'm, I'm off, and I won't be uh, doing anything. Enjoy the off-season, Brent. Thank you very much, Steve. Okay, um, a couple of plugs. Uh, please go to whitelinefever.ning.com and hit the donate button. If you donate, I'll send you a sticker or something. I might even write a column for donors only. I think that's a really good idea. That could be my future. That's how I'm going to run things in the future, if I get enough donors. And also, if you uh, do your Christmas shopping, uh, click on the Amazon banner and it uh, helps us out a little bit. We'll get a little bit of a uh, kickback from that and you don't pay any extra. Here's some Steel Panther. And after that, we're going to hear from Tracer and we're also going to hear from Brandon from Crowbot. <laughs> Sausage went to-
Hey, this is Michael Starr. This is Lexi Fox. And you're listening to White Lion Fever. Okay, we're back uh, with Jed and Mike from Tracer. Now, you mentioned uh, the first part of our interview about Kevin Shirley. When, when you get in the studio with a guy like that, sort of an iconic guy, do you just want to do you just hammer him for stories? Does, or does he actually offer them up first up? He definitely offered them up. He gave us some, <laughs> some lowdown dirt on some bands that he'd worked with. Um, we didn't really go digging because uh, we had such a short amount of time with him. We only had two weeks to record the album. Uh, so a lot of it was business and, and that sort of thing. But he was a very fun guy to work with, uh, very quick to work with. But, um, yeah, it was, it was all laughs and giggles, you know, when we were there. And he has some some pretty impressive rock star Spinal Tap style stories. <laughs> sure he does, I'm sure he does. I, was, I won't even ask you to share any. Oh, um, <laughs> but um, has has you know as we said uh, before, you're touring with Screaming Jets. Just the fact that you've spent so much time overseas has it given you some um, perspective on? I mean, there's great bands here who are unheard of in, uh, in the US and Europe, and equally, there are some bands like Airborne who are much bigger there than they are here. Do you do you learn from that? Do you, do you learn about perhaps mistakes and and the right moves that other other bands have taken? Every lesson, man. Like I guess part of it is that you get to, like in coming up in that in that world over there. Uh, there's a highly professionalised regular touring circuit because you've got 450 million people to tour to. You know, so it means there's a real run of shows that you can get on, and what that means is that. Not only do you get that experience of playing every day, but the people you work with, all the local crews and all the local promoters and all that kind of stuff, they're all used to working with bands who are working every day. Yeah. So you get into that real um, road-dogging mentality, you know, yeah. and, like, and that's pretty helpful for coming back and just running a slick ship, you know? Like, yeah. we know how to have a fucking good time, but that's sorry, but that comes after, you know... Like we like to put on an awesome show every night and then tear it up after the show, you know. And I think you only get those sort of uh, the ability to be able to do that when you you've done it for a, a long time, and that's what Europe gives you is an opportunity to do a lot of shows, get really slick, get really tight at it, so that you can have a fucking great time playing the show and after the show. You know, Gene Simmons says rock is dead. I mean, um, I know, I know for certain. In, and, and he got a lot of publicity by doing it and that's probably the reason he said it but I know for certain in Europe with the amount of time I've spent there it's certainly not dead, dead in Europe but what about, what about in Australia you come back here and I suppose you've got the perspective that you just talked about Jet so you come back here and, and then does it, do you look at the local industry and the local scene differently? Um, we, well, yes uh, but we've always looked at the world as as our market and yeah. trying to figure out where we'd best place ourselves. I don't. I know that rock's not dead. It's just very quiet at the moment, which mm. isn't a good a good thing for rock to be. Yeah, um, well, we're just about to have a. We're we're right at the cusp of a rock renaissance. Yeah, yeah. In, in ninety minutes from now. Well, hey, look at look at Violent Soho too. <laughs> look at DZ Death Race. Like these guys are making this thing happen. You yeah, know, yeah. and like. I remember back in the back in 2008, right, coming across Violent Soho Records and thinking they were the bomb, you know. And then everyone, all the industry people that I spoke to about them at the time, were like, oh, they're so uncool, and like, 
And you know what? They just they dropped an album at the beginning of the year that was just a better version of the album they'd put out before, and all those same people that said they were so uncool are now like flocking to them like crazy, and like mm. it's like, dude. They didn't change, you changed. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like, they are rad. And there's a bunch of bands like that coming through. It'll be just, you know, it's beautiful to be part of that wave. Yeah, yeah. You know? The problem here in Oz is there's sort of maybe a lack of a focal point for, for, the, um, for the scene and for the fans, Absolutely. really. And that's why we've got to bring Hot Metal Magazine back, don't you think? Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent segue. <laughs> Number one fans right here. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. There's, like, this massive groundswell, and I think that people are... Are kind of sick of listening to, to stuff without a soul. You know, they, it's only a matter of time before it comes back. Same way it did in the nineties. You know, there was so much eighties crap going around that was, you know, all technology and let's see what we can do with computers. And that, after a while, people get sick of it. They want something with a bit of realism. You know, something yeah. that's that's true mm. um, that they can like sink their teeth into. And and yeah, rock's coming back. I mean, what was the um, the English band the two Royal piece Blood. Royal Blood man like just straight to the fucking top of the charts yeah yeah, you know, yeah because people are thirsting for that music I know Airborne for instance the, you know they won't do hair metal festivals you know they're trying to stay away from that market I mean you guys even though the, your sound is, is quite straight ahead rock and you openly talk about 90s influences you've kind of climbed on the sort of AOR classic rock thing in the UK maybe not deliberately but it is how deliberate are you about that sort of thing about where you know where you're positioned and, or has it just happened by itself Incre- <laughs> we're increasingly deliberate I, I guess is the thing like as you come up you learn you know and like and part of learning is that people that you work with uh, or around you have their vision of what your band is mm. and that's cool that people get enthusiastic about your shit but that means they start to drive you in a particular way and, and I think it's only you come to a realisation at some point that you are being sort of pushed into an area and I think every band goes through this mm-hmm. at a certain point and, uh, and yeah, as you sort it's of... It's never openly stated though. You, no, yeah, of course yeah, not. Yeah. It's like it almost happens by osmosis, yeah, you know, yeah. like, oh, we got... The, oh, that, I guess that's good, that's bigger and better and, mm-hmm. and, and blah. But I think, like, as you get, you know, do it a little longer and get a little savvier, you start to go, actually, no, like, we sort of know our band, you know, mm-hmm. and, like, this is... Uh, that's wicked that you guys want us to go that way but what check this out what if we started moving in you know yeah. like this and you just get better at working knowing what you want and organizing the people who come around you to facilitate what you want okay so before we go to the next song we're going to ask you to be specific <laughs> like what what directions are you being forced in and what directions do you want to go in uh, well, it's, it's more forced is probably overstating. Yeah, not forced. I mean, if we were a young band, you know, we sort of anything that we could get, we we're like, wow, this is incredible. There's an obvious jump in people that we're playing to and everything like that. And now that we're sort of, as Jet said, we're older, we're uglier, and you know, we we understand a bit more of how things work. We can sort of start saying now, okay, cool, we've, we've this this demographic that we've got, the AOR demographic is great, okay, we've done that let's let's try and get some of the kids who want to love something new yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to start loving rock again yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Let's, let's be that band because yeah. um, no one's ever described Caius as being AOR, have they? Absolutely <laughs> not, you know but that was the thing, I mean, the pigeonholing of bands and the labelling of bands is yeah. something that bands do not do yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. well, bands that 
that play from the heart don't do. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like people that play from the heart, and I like to think of us as that sort of band. We we play the music that we love because we love it, no yeah, other yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah. And whoever loves it, loves it. That's fine. You know, if if that happens to be the AOR crowd, then great. I think personally that kids that like loud rock music are also going to like it. Mm. So for the team around us, we say help us yeah, push yeah, to yeah. those kids as well. Yeah. That's the thing with social media though now, everything has to be boiled down to a phrase oh. and like people won't even listen to you unless they've read three words that they like, you know what I mean? Or they won't read a story and sometimes they'll read a story and they'll still believe what's in the headline above what they read. But anyway, give us a uh, um, give us another song, guys. A track. Do you want to trace a track? Or you it's your call. What would you like to hear? I mean, you you, you were uh, name-checking a bunch of new bands just then. So. Alright, okay. Alright, so what we're going to do, we're going to listen to a an LA band who we were hanging out with uh, when we were over there doing our new record. Uh, it's a band called The Vitals. Okay. Um, and dude, get ready to have your mind blown. By and you're going through your uh, iTunes and your phone now because no, I'm just you're trying right. to pick the song you right, want to play. Because um, he's that much of a fan. Yeah, all right. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go with... Uh, just because we can, we're going to go with Perennial because okay. I dig it.
this is Mike from Tracer. You're on White Line Fever. Okay, welcome back to the program. I've got uh, Brandon here from Crowbot. How are you, Brandon? Uh, excellent, excellent. Exciting times. The, the, new, uh, the new record's out, Something Supernatural, and you're doing a lot of interviews, and uh, I'd imagine there's quite a bit of a buzz around it from what, what I gather. Yeah, people seem to dig it, and uh, it's, it's surprising that we, we, uh, we're welcoming, welcoming it with open arms. We're, uh, we're really uh, great. We're, we're grateful to have the album finally out there, and, and uh, to see the responses is a great thing for us, and, and we're, we're happy to be a part of the hard rock world. <laughs> now, how does life change for you? When you've got you know the first full length record and you've got like doing all this publicity and and uh, maybe a few more people starting to show up at at, at your uh, shows, I mean, does that change your daily existence? Or, uh, you know, or or is it pretty, things pretty much stay the same and you just sort of keep that sort of compartmentalized, um, you know, and go about your normal normal daily routine, you know? Oh yeah, we we just, we just you know roll with the punches and. <clears throat> You know, it's uh, to pretty much business as usual. We just wake up uh, in the van most often, <laughs> or wake up in, in the hotels. They look; they all look the same. The van still looks the same. Everybody's farts still smell the same. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's uh, it, it has been uh, the crowds have been growing for us. Mm. It's been a really cool thing to you know to see the radio support and to see the you know the the publicity support from from uh, you know. The magazines and the you know, the, whole, the whole radio culture grabbing hold of what we're doing. It's it's really something we haven't uh, haven't expected. Yeah, uh, we don't really consider ourselves a radio rock band, and you know, we we don't uh, we definitely don't write songs for for such avenues. So um, you know, for for such uh, an immense amount of radio support, you know, for for the single Nowhere to Hide, and you know, some of the other tracks as well. Uh, is, is Proved uh, really, uh, really cool, and it's 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 showing in in our crowds and, and the numbers there. It's uh, it's a really cool thing to see, you know, such great support out there. The problem, I suppose, with it being your first round of press with a full length record. I know you had the EP before, but is that you have to tell the story repeatedly about you know how the band got together, the old influences question, all that sort of stuff. Is there rather than asking you to go through it again? I'll ask you, is there a point that people are missing? So when you read about yourselves back after answering that question repeatedly, is there something that people just aren't getting or is there a point that you want to get across that about the way the band formed and about your influences? Is there something that you want to say that isn't really getting out there, you know? Um, what aspects of it are people getting right and what aspects are they getting wrong, you know? You know, I think everybody's pretty much... Getting it right. I mean, it's it's all it's all relative, and and any any band that you name is probably some way, shape, or form going to have some sort of influence on us. And, and you know, I think that's that's really uh, what it's the cool thing about Crowbot is with you know we're a collective of so much influence, and when we bring it together, that's that's what makes it unique. Is that mm. we, you know we have so many things as individuals influencing us and, and so much of the same, but at the same time, so, so much that's, that's different. Mm. Um, but a, a part of us that I think people don't really catch on to too quickly is the funky side of, mm. of what we're all about, you know, and, uh, and maybe it's, it's having the insiders look up at, 
in the uh, back catalog and the uh, sort of the songs that might show up on some some albums in the future. But um, we're definitely about the funk, mm. and uh, you know, bands like Funkadelic and Mother's Finest, and you know, even the Chili Peppers, and and uh, you know, bands like that are definitely bands that have influenced us on top of the rock bands that we seem to get compared to, you know, or, or, you know, some of the, some of the more modern bands, like, you know, we, we hear, we hear Black Crows a lot. We mm-hmm. hear Soundgarden a lot, um, Rage Against the Machine with the rips a lot. Um, <clears throat> and it's all, it's all great. We, we welcome any kind of comparison. It's actually one of our favorite things just to hear who, who they will compare us to next. And it's, it's, it's always something different, but that's the thing about it is, and the beauty about us is that you're probably right. Whatever, whatever you say, you're probably right. <laughs> in some way, shape, or form, they have influence. You know, one of the bands you mentioned is Cry of Love, and I love that band. They're completely unknown in this part of the world, and they're not really, they weren't really big anywhere, really. But, uh, where yeah. where did you come? You, where did you come across them? Did you see them? I mean, they did have that. I think Too Cold in the Winter was on MTV a little bit, or VH1 or whatever. But I mean, is that where you, you come across them, or did someone hand you their CD, or what was the story there? Actually, Bishop grew up listening to Cry of Love. And, um, you know, he he grew up in Tennessee, which is not too far from uh, North Carolina, where they were uh, where they called home. Um, and uh, they they made their way up up to Tennessee and, and into uh, Bishop's mother's uh, CD player and and or tape deck whichever of the, <laughs> of the two it was I can't remember. <laughs> you know I I found out about Cry of Love through Bishop and and his you know heavy influence growing up of, of uh, and uh, their guitar player's name escapes me right now I know he he went on to to be in the Black Crows for an album and I think he plays with Cheryl Crow now or or he's doing some country gigs now but uh, just an incredible guitar player and, and you know listening to to uh, Cry of Love and, and listening to Bishop's guitar work you can definitely hear the influence there as well and uh, you know we had uh, it's, this is a cool story from from the road a couple months ago uh, we were playing a gig in, in Raleigh North Carolina and we had the chance to meet uh, Kelly their their singer and uh, we, you know, we had a great conversation with him. He told us some uh, some really corny jokes that, that pulled some laughs out of us, and you know, just a really bright spirited guy. And and uh, unfortunately, three weeks after we we met him, he, he passed away. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was just a really crazy thing. It was like, wow, we we just met this dude, and like, you know, Bishop was uh, of course a, such a such a great. Uh, you know, just a, a huge fan of what they were doing, and you know, to to meet him and then and to have something like that happen was just was just mind blowing. You know, um, just a crazy thing. But you know, we were really grateful to have the, the opportunity to meet meet him and and uh, have conversations with him. And uh, we we're definitely huge fans of that band. Well, you know, I did uh, um, say that we're going to play a song um, roughly every five minutes, and um, I suppose now it's got to be a cry of love song, hasn't it? Have you got Have you got one for us? Yeah, let's let's go with Highway Joe.
Oh. Got a white line fever. Going around land down under. Going to turn around the corner way down yonder. <laughs> but I'm not even going to try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever. You get a chance, come and check us out live. We're going to rock your socks off and whatever, rock like fuck. That's what I say, okay? <laughs> come on down and rock on.